fellow geek brethren, you have come to the right place for all of your gaming, gadgets, technology, anime, video games, comic books, and anything else you can think of. It is GeekSpeak here at SpeakGeekSpeak.com. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, live from Brooklyn, New York, Ian Levenstein. Welcome to GeekSpeak here at SpeakGeekSpeak.com. This is episode 42 of GeekSpeak. And, well, it might sound a bit familiar, as in it might sound a bit like the past. And, well, I'm going to explain that right now. This is being recorded over at Brooklyn College Radio, considering that I have the space to do so right now. So I'm just taking advantage of that. Anyway, we'll be back to the home soon. Anyway, it's also really good to be recording an episode of GeekSpeak as it feels like it's been forever and a half. Now, I want to make something clear to you guys out there, just so nobody's you know wondering what exactly happened the past couple of weeks and all that. Well, I was away for a wedding for a week, and then after that, cyclone game after cyclone game after cyclone game, that's where I was for most of the time. And I was also doing stuff. I was going to the movies with some buddies and all that. I was enjoying the fact that, well, it's the summer, and because it's the summer... Updates of GeekSpeak are going to be a, a bit more sporadic than they were in the past. I mean, there were weekly episodes of GeekSpeak up until my two-week break that it took a little while ago. Then, obviously, episode 40 and episode 41 and all that. And then we were back. I think we should probably be back to weekly episodes by, say, September or so. But through the month of August... I'm not quite certain if we're going to have weekly episodes. There will be episodes of GeekSpeak. That much I am certainly going to make sure happens. Because, well, quite frankly, I want to talk about geek stuff. That's that's the way it is. So we're going to try and get as many episodes out as possible. If there are any delays, I'm going to put them in two places. I'm going to put them right on the speakgeekspeak.com main page. And I'm also going to put them on a sticky, which actually this was suggested to me by... A buddy of mine over on the Comic Geek Speak forums. Bam! Here you go. Yes, it was indeed Matthew Guy. So, yeah, Matthew Guy suggested that I put up a sticky on the Comic Timing forums about Geek Speak updates. And that is exactly what I'm going to do from now on. So, it'll be on the main page at speakgeekspeak.com. And also, for those of you who frequent the Comic Timing forums, Comic Timing being my other podcast, it'll be available there as well whenever I update Geek Speak. Nevertheless, it's good to be back. I'm back. And I'm back with a lot of news from the past couple of weeks that I didn't really have an opportunity to talk about. And, well, while I was gone, the big debate between Netscape versus Dig started exploding. Does Netscape have the most giant balls in the world? Did they have a reason to be trying to steal away Dig users from Dig.com? And better yet, will anybody actually take them up on their offer? That will be the question right there. Also, Kazaa has gone straight for about the three of you who actually realized. That's right. Kazaa, the thing that you used to get your illegal songs for all those years, is going straight. Just like Napster did. Napster's been doing a pretty decent job. 
Will Kazaa be able to do that? That's the question. Zune, the proposed iPod killer, is already having troubles. What are those troubles? I'll make sure to discuss that. And one of the biggest pieces of news, which is actually going to be my lead story on today's show, E3 is going to be a lot smaller in 2007. Is it dead? Or is it just an evolution by subtraction? That's the question that we're going to have to look into. Also, a quick piece of news that David Price sent over to me, my partner for Comic Timing and also a guy who has contributed many times to the show, a patch that you'll be able to put in to your laptop computers that will actually hopefully make your battery last a bit longer if you use USB, and a review of Clerks 2. As promised, I'm going to have my review of Clerks 2. Snooch to the nooch! And I also have a bit of a comic rant. This one's not much of a rant, though. This is more of a thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to discuss the most recent Paul Dini issues of Batman that have been coming out and just how much I've enjoyed them because he is a legend of the Dark Knight right there. Paul Dini is a legend of the Dark Knight, and hey, he's been doing a damn good job. But let's talk about E3 first as E3, the whole situation with E3 has been huge the past couple of weeks. And also, by the way, at the end of the show, I will have a spam mail medley, but let's get into E3. For those of you who don't know what E3 is, and that's probably about three of you, it's the big expo that happens every single year. The Electronics Software Association runs it, and E3 Expo... See, actually, no, wait, no, excuse me. It's not E3 Expo. That That's the one thing that gets me. In all of these articles, they've said E3 Expo. It's just E3. That's it. E3. The last... E stands for Expo. Doesn't that make sense to you? Ah, well, whatever. People started calling it the E3 Expo, and somehow that happened. So technically, it's E4. Not G4, E4. Not E3, E4, but E3, E4, 87654321. Hi. E3's been getting huge over the years, to the point where it sort of exploded. I mean, so many people are involved with this thing now, and so many people go to it year after year, to the point where... It's really hard to find anything there. I mean, when you go to E3, you're looking for a booth, and it'll take you about 12 years to find that booth. Sort of like San Diego Comic-Con, only San Diego Comic-Con, from what I've heard at least, if you know what you're looking for, you'll be able to find it. With E3, hasn't really been the case. Recently, some of the major players in the industry threatened to drop out of E3 because it was not really benefiting them anymore. Because, hey, the people that were going were not people who were going to be buying these games. Quite frankly, E3 was originally formed as a sort of a press expo, sort of a way to show things off to the public. And not many people were actually let in that were the public. Then the booth babes started coming in, and then they, you know, they actually opened it up to the public, and it's not really much of an industry thing anymore, but they're going to try and change that. Well, here is the news out of 1up.com. Originally, I'll, I'll read you the original story first, and then I'll read the addendum. Because the original story actually made it seem as if E3 2006 might have been the last E3 period. Since then, an update has come out that basically stated that there will be an E3, just a very much toned-down version of it. Was E3 2006 the last of its kind? Each May, the game industry descends on the Los Angeles Convention Center for the video game trade show. However, if reports from NextGen and GameSpot are to be believed... That event, as it is known, may be dead. After reports surfaced in MCV that major publishers, 
they said Electronics Arts, had called for an examination of the event's tremendous costs. If major publishers or platform holders pulled out of E3, the result ultimately could be the crippling end to the show, as NextGen suggests, or the end of the show as we know it, as GameSpot suggests. One industry insider told MCV, costs have been getting out of hand. We're taking double-digit millions for some of us. But that's just not for space, of course. It's build parties, hotels, flights, etc. Security, particularly, has become a massive cost. With publishers like EA holding more events on their own, Hot Summer Nights, it doesn't make financial sense for these companies to invest in something like E3, where their dollars are ultimately being spent on a show for their competitors. E3 is a competitive environment by default. If EA did pull out of E3, it could have led to an exodus of publishers and possibly platform makers bailing out of the event. Entertainment Software Association President Doug Lowenstein is expected to make an official announcement about the rumors early this week. As it is Sunday afternoon, this is a little while ago, so obviously this is a bit old, emails to the ESA didn't receive a response before press time. That's this past Sunday. The official E3 page still indicates that planning is already underway for E3 2007, and that the event will take place from May 16th to 18th at the Los Angeles Convention Center. That's not to say that these reports are inaccurate, but rather the official E3 page hasn't been updated to reflect the changes that may or may not be coming to the trade event. However, the Los Angeles Convention Center events calendar doesn't list E3 on the lineup for next May. Then, the next day, this addendum came out to that story. The world of interactive entertainment has changed since E3 Expo was created 12 years ago. At that time, we were focused on establishing the industry and securing orders for the holiday season. Over the years, it has become clear that we need a more intimate program, including higher quality, more personal dialogue with the worldwide media developers, retailers, and other key industry audiences, said Douglas Lowenstein, president of the Entertainment Software Association, in the expected press release that came this past week. The release comes on the heels of yesterday's reports that the video game industry's biggest week, E3, would see changes going forward. Some sites speculated that the event would be canceled altogether. Lowenstein's words this morning seem to suggest otherwise. He maintains that the industry needs a more intimate program. Is that spin for downsizing? I myself do feel that is spin for downsizing because what's more intimate than having a smaller show? According to the Entertainment Software Association, E3 will still take place next May, and it will still take place in Los Angeles, contrary to earlier reports, and will focus on press events and small meetings with media, retail development, and other key sectors. Lowenstein cites the emergence of the Tokyo Game Show, Leipzig Game Convention, and company-specific events as the reason why a single industry mega show is no longer needed. But does the industry need an E3? Is the ESA correct in striking E3 as we know it from the calendar of events? What does this mean for the future of the game industry. How did E3's downsizing get to this point? And most of all, the ESA promises more answers in the coming months, and 1UP.com will have more on that sooner than that, hopefully. At press time, when this article came out, Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo, and the offices at the Entertainment Software Association have yet to respond to requests for comment. And I'm pretty sure that there has not been much out of their camp since then. So what's this saying? E3, as we know it, will no longer exist. Quite frankly, I'm kind of glad. Because, as the article mentions, E3 is not nearly as necessary as it used to be anymore. It was sort of redundant. 
most of the stuff that was coming out at E3 this past year was stuff that was either not nearly as far along as people would have hoped it to be or things that were held back for the Tokyo Game Show. A lot, and I mean a lot, came out of Tokyo this year. Tokyo Game Show is huge, bigger than it's ever been before, to the point where American media makes sure to be there to cover this. They go all the way to Tokyo just to get this done. E3 obviously still has coverage, just not nearly the coverage it used to have. And this happens to every single convention at one point or another. They just reach a point where they realize that they might not be nearly as big as they once were. What should we do to maintain ourselves? What should we do to ensure that E3 continues to be the pinnacle event, that people remember that E3 is around? Because many conventions in the past have stopped due to either redundancy or due to being unable to continue to be in a space that size. I'll give you an example. This was canceled for many a reason, but Bath, Big Apple Anime Fest, was one of the biggest anime conventions here in the New York area. They sort of were too big for their bridges at the time because it's very hard to put together any sort of convention in the New York City area. Also, the people who were running the show were not nearly as competent as they should have been. I'm not trying to put anybody down here, but this is what I've heard from other folks. So that's why I'm making a statement like that. They just really couldn't get their act together in time to actually put together a Big Apple Anime Fest in time. Also, they tried to schedule it for the same weekend as the Republican National Convention, which was sort of a silly idea at the time. E3 does not have these problems. Sure, it is really difficult to get something going in Los Angeles because, obviously... L.A. is a mecca, just like New York is. But they still have the space. Are they going to use all the space? That's a good question. A good way to downsize, a good way to make a convention smaller is by using less of the allotted space. Conventions like New York Comic Con ran into a lot of trouble when they tried to use a smaller space for a bigger convention. However, if you're intentionally trying to make a smaller convention, getting a smaller space might be a good idea. So... They might actually want to move out of L.A. In fact, my plan for E3 is to make it a traveling convention. A lot of conventions started off like this, and a lot of conventions eventually switched to a plan such as this. If E3 were to, say, one year happen in L.A., one year happen in Ohio, one year happen in New York, one year happen in Atlanta, you know, go all over the place, they might be able to garner up more story than they would get if somebody went to E3 and said, oh, look, it's another E3 in Los Angeles. Maybe I'll check it out. A lot of folks can't get out to L.A. A lot of gaming folks can't get out to L.A. If you have it at a different location every year, you're going to probably please more of the fans that were not able to get to E3. You're going to get a lot more journalists as well, a lot more of the smaller game journalists who can't make such negotiations to get the flights and all that. Those flights cost a lot of money especially to a place like Los Angeles. So make it a smaller, more compact convention. Make it a movable convention, and you'll probably be able to get a successful E3. Will you still get the main companies? Will you still be able to get guys like EA and Squaresoft and Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo? Are you still going to get the bigwigs there? I certainly hope so. For their sake, I certainly hope so, as not having these guys involved would be a major snag. For anybody involved with E3, you got to at least have the big three. You got to at least have Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo. 
if you don't have EA, it'll be a bit of a hit. But at the same time, if you're making the convention smaller, that's just one less booth to have. Also, be friendlier to the third parties. Make it so that the smaller companies are really interested in this again. Because E3 has gotten so big that the smaller companies just can't fit in there anymore. What makes a convention work is that there's enough emphasis on the three main parties at hand. Number one, the press. Number two, the bigwigs. Number three, the smaller fries. As long as you cater to all three of those, you'll be good. E3 has made the mistake of forgetting two out of three of those. Press is not nearly as welcome there anymore because there's very little room for them. It was originally a trade show. That's what E3 was. If they cut out the fans from the equation, a lot of people would be unhappy. However, if you open up the floor, say you make it, instead of a week-long event, which is what E3 basically is, instead of making it a week-long event, say you make it a weekend event, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You make Friday for the press. You make Saturday, half of Saturday even, for the press. Then Saturday evening, you open it up to the crowds. And Sunday, you open it up to the crowds. Or you could do it where Thursday is the press event. Then Friday, half the day, is press. And then open it up to the crowds. They have a similar plan now, but I want it to go broader than that. I want it so that there's a cutoff. Where you have the industry, and you're pleasing the fans, and all is well with the world. It'll be very difficult to actually pull that off, but at the same time, I think they can do it. If they want to make E3 smaller, they probably can. They just got to do it the right way. It might even take them a couple of years. In fact, I wouldn't be against canceling E3 2007 to come back with a brand spanking new E3 2008 the next year. But they probably don't want to get out of the heads of gamers, so that can probably explain why they want to have E3 2007. So it'll probably be a very transitionary year. Don't expect a lot out of E3 2007. 2008, perhaps. I just I want this thing to survive. I just want it to understand that to make it a quote-unquote more intimate show, they're going to have to do a lot. Make it smaller. Make it so that the industry is not afraid to go. And make it so that the crowds are not killing people. They're not literally killing people. Don't you worry. But when crowds are really, really huge, that'll draw away some people. I hope that makes sense as well, because a lot of people think, hey, no, 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 the more the merrier, that's a good thing. If you're trying to move your way through about an aisle that's, you know, the size of two people, when there's about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people there, you're going to have some trouble and you might not even decide to go. If you try E3 and you get trampled when all of a sudden Ken Kodoraki goes, it's Ridge Racer, Ridge Racer, and everybody starts running, that's probably going to leave those folks out. E3, I like it. I always have. Just please, remember what you are. And perhaps there will still be an E3 to come. If there isn't, I think the industry will still be able to survive. Tokyo Game Show might very well be the future. It's very difficult to announce the death of something before it dies. E3 is not dead yet. It's limping, but it's not dead yet. I really hope it doesn't die, though, but eh. These things happen in an industry as big as the game industry. It got big halfway because of E3. Hopefully, E3 will continue to thrive. Hopefully, E3 will continue to thrive. And one way or another, hopefully, they will.
Netscape versus Dig. Web 2.0 is huge. Everybody wants to get elements of Web 2.0 onto their pages. They love the interactivity of it. They love that it makes a user experience out of a website. And a lot of people are using that technology for themselves now. Netscape is certainly one of them. If you look at what Netscape has become over the past couple of weeks, it has been a major transformation. What was once a site that not many people looked at has become something that looks pretty familiar, actually. In fact, this is how familiar it is. It looks like Dig. Oh, my God. Could it be because everybody goes to Dig.com? Could it be that Dig.com is one of the most frequently visited sites on the interwebs? That could certainly be the reason. David Price submitted this story to me, and I, I had heard about it before he did so, but I'm glad that he actually submitted it so I can remember to actually talk about it on the show because this had my britches in a bunch for a little while. And here is the news out of The Register. The Register.co.uk, to be exact. Netscape versus Dig, written by John Oates. Newly relaunched Netscape.com has been getting into a bit of a slanging match with Dig, the site which gets its users to rate news stories. The new Netscape does something very similar, but pays its would-be editors up to $1,000 a month for their recommendations. Kevin Rose from Dig and Jason Kalakanis from Netscape have been trading blows in blogland for some time. But visitors to Netscape.com earlier today were greeted with a rather rude pop-up. It was a four-letter word of Anglo-Saxon origin, but obscure etymology. Could you guess what that is? Hint, it's not cool. Hint, it's not, yeah, spelled Y-E-A-H. Hint, it's not duck. It's something that rhymes with duck. Once you removed the first dialog box, a second appeared, which said, Hi to all you diggers out there. The content of this site was also changed. Thanks to the many reg readers who tipped us off to this one, several bloggers reckoned the site was hit by malicious JavaScript. The writer claimed he had warned Netscape, and the company had failed to do anything about it. All right. This is the sort of fun and games that happens on the internet here. One person speaks out. One person says, I'm going to do something a bit silly here. I'm going to go over to Netscape, and I'm going to do something obscene and make them really screwed and, you know, make the... 30-year-old mothers out there, 40-year-old mothers, make their 10-year-old kids turn away and say, Johnny, don't look at that web page. It'll scar you for life. People love doing things like that. For instance, there were times when ebounds.com redirected you to a porn site because of the battle that ebounds had had with 4chan. The internet is a very hostile place. There are battles going on between every sector of the internet community. One person hates the other person. The next person hates the other person. The next person really doesn't mind the other person, but the other person minds them. And the battles begin. Netscape and Dig, no exception there. In fact, I would guarantee you that Netscape's redesign probably has a lot to do with the fact that the head of Netscape 
can't stand Kevin Rose. So he thought to himself, I should make a web page that looks a lot like theirs and does similar things using Web 2.0 technology to get a website out of it. And I should pay people because dig.com doesn't pay its diggers. I should pay people to submit things. That way, I'll get people to turn away from Dig and make my website one of the premier websites on the internet. Yeah, you know what? Loyalty is a very difficult thing to break on the internet. For instance, when Ebombs got attacked, the guys who are loyal to Ebombs got mighty PO'd. And they sort of shrugged it off and said, eh, it's all right. These guys really are immature. We'll do what we can here. And then they DDoS the sites. And anyway, Dig users are going to stick with Dig unless you give them something that's better. I've looked at Netscape.com. It looks kind of interesting. But it also looks exactly like Dig. There's no difference. You got to do something at least a little bit different other than paying people to make people switch over. Dig users, the biggest Dig users also, and this is something that was mentioned on Dig Nation. Got to plug them, one of my favorite podcasts, over at revision3.com. Dig Nation, heck yeah, check it out. Good stuff. All right. They mentioned on their own podcast, the Dig users, the top Dig users change on a regular basis. That's what makes Dig work so well. When one person goes away, the next person is immediately replaced by somebody as cool, possibly even cooler. Netscape is trying to get the biggest diggers away from Dig with their $1,000 a month plan. It's not going to work, mind you, because who here listening to this podcast even remembered that Netscape had a Netscape.com? Before all this. Better yet, who still uses Netscape? I want to get emails. I want people to email speakgeekspeak at gmail.com and ask me, Ian, why do you think nobody actually pays attention to Netscape? I use Netscape. I want people to send me emails saying, I'm a Netscape browser user and I use their web page. That's what I do. I want that to happen. Because last I checked, nobody uses it anymore. And nobody has for some time. The internet is a series of tubes. Okay, no it's not. Sorry, I had to do it at least once this episode. The internet is ever-changing. Ever-evolving. Netscape is part of the internet's past. They're trying to make themselves a part of the future. That's why AOL, a part of the internet's past, is trying to make themselves free to try and keep up with the ever-changing internet. They fired a bunch of people this past week because they were losing money. Netscape, chances are, is losing some money too. What better way to get people back than by spending some money? And by the way, great plan there. We're losing money. What should we do? We should spend money. Brilliant! It's not going to work. Netscape.com. Check it out. See for yourself. See whether or not you feel it's better than Dig. See whether or not you feel it stacks up to dig. I myself am not really leaning towards that route. You might think otherwise. Netscape? Nice try. But uh, we're going to have to wait and see whether or not this actually works because I, I, I'm, I'm doubting it. I really am. Ah, internet. You are so the funny. So very the funny. <laughs>
All right, those of you who listened to episode 41 of GeekSpeak heard me talk about that brand spanking new Microsoft MP3 player that's going to be coming out that is supposed to be their iPod killer. First of all, let me make something perfectly clear here. There is no such thing as an iPod killer in the marketplace today. There might be someday. Microsoft's going to have to put out a couple products before they do that. They're going to have to put out with a couple versions of this to garner up some steam for people to start switching over to them. Now, in the previous podcast, in 41, I said they're going to have to do a really good job with this first one to make me believe that it's really going to work, to make me believe that perhaps they might actually get some of their old guys back. Well, I got news for you. They're already screwing up. What a shock there. This is coming out of MaxSimmonNews.com, which I actually got this link from, guess where, Dig.com. Zune already problematic. The iPod killer won't offer video at launch. Are you kidding me? Bloomberg TV says that the New York Post is now reporting that Microsoft is delaying the video portion of its Zune device, which is to take on the ubiquitous Apple iPod. Bloomberg's Bernard Lowe in Hong Kong interviewed John McLellan, general manager for finance at Microsoft Corporation's Asia-Pacific Operations, who stated that the Zune would be out sometime in the next 12 months. McLellan discussed the Zune's Wi-Fi functionality as being an advantage over competitors. Well, until Microsoft actually launches Zune, I don't know what advantage he thinks they'll have over Apple's iPod, considering Microsoft doesn't have a clue as to what Apple will be launching this fall. Ooh, and yet he's probably right. During the interview, Bloomberg's Bernard Lowe quoted a recent statement by Rob Glazer, CEO of Real Networks, which stated something to the effect that Microsoft was abandoning their developers with Zune a key point that was made in a recent Maximum report. Bloomberg's Bernard Lowe's only major error during the interview was repeating that Microsoft Next Generation Operating System, dubbed Vista, would launch on consumer PCs in time for this Christmas, which directly contradicted McClellan's own statement that only the business version of Vista would launch in November, that the consumer version would launch in January 2007. With the news of Zune not having video features at launch, you can already begin laughing at what the media has prematurely labeled as Microsoft's iPod killer. It's vaporware all over again. Ooh! Ouch! That is a bit harsh right there. This is not Duke Nukem Forever, which actually might finally come out in a year or so. Zune, or whatever you want to call it, as I'm pretty sure Zune is not the official final name of this thing. They they had me going there for a little bit. I got to say, they had me going there. On episode 41, they had me going. When I heard that there was going to be video on it, I really thought this could be the one. I really thought this could do it. This could put a dent into Apple. It won't kill it, obviously, because there is no iPod killer. But perhaps put a dent in it. Now their dent is going to get significantly less without having a video portion to it. Because... Even though the iPod video or the iPod with video is not the best video player in the world, it plays videos. The people who switch over from Apple to Microsoft will be looking for something that plays videos. 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 The reason why I got my Zen Vision M was because it played videos. It played stuff that the iPod didn't. 
This is what's going to get people over to them. I sound so very Seinfeld right now with this rant, but this is what is going to get people over to them by offering formats that the other guys don't offer. Well, guess what? They're not doing that. So they're kind of screwed. So what are we going to do as consumers? We're going to ignore this Zune until it has every feature that we want it to have. That's what we're really going to have to do. Because, quite simply, Zune has to be everything to get people over to its side. It can't just be one piece of the pie. It has to be the pie. The iPod is the pie right now. Video and audio. iTunes Music Store. Podcasts. Vidcasts. And so on and so forth. That is the iPod model. Microsoft's model will have to be video, audio, a really good Windows media store, podcasts, and vidcasts, and possibly a good microphone, and possibly FM, and possibly AM. Because quite frankly, I want AM on an MP3 player. Because that's really hard to find. Because I looked, trust me, I looked, and I could not find myself an MP3 player that actually had AM, except for this one MP3 player, this one load MP3 player that was like 300 bucks and a very small hard drive, and basically they were just toting it as a good MP3 player because it had AM. And I'm just going to buy something for AM. Just like nobody's going to buy something just for MP3s unless they're looking for a small little MP3 player for their father, like what I did. My dad, I bought my dad a really small MP3 player. I think it has a 512 megabytes of space. The Zune is probably going to be 30 gigs. Do you folks out there want to buy a 30 gigabyte MP3 player that plays nothing but MP3s and WMAs? I don't think so. By holding off on this, even if it's a, an upgrade in the firmware that allows people to play video. You know what? If it is just an upgrade in the firmware, then perhaps they'll get away with this. But if it's a second player that's going to do video, nobody's going to buy the first that way. You're kind of kicking yourself in your own butt right there, Microsoft, and I hope you realize that. I'm holding back the laughter right now because uh, it's kind of hard not to. Oh, boy. Microsoft, learn how to market things properly again. Learn how to read the market properly again. Learn that you can't do things halfway. You gotta do it 100%. Delay the device if you have to. Delay it to get that video support on there if you have to. Don't release a device and then re release another device a couple months later with video support. As I previously stated, if it's just gonna be a firmware upgrade, that's one thing. It just better just be a firmware upgrade for their sakes or they're gonna lose a lot of money. And they might have to do an Area 51 drop like E.T. for the Atari. Oof. That stings.
Hope you guys enjoyed that little extra interlude there. I had a phone call that I had to answer. Nevertheless, that is a really rocking song, and I gotta once again thank the Podshow Podsafe Network for all of the music I play on this podcast, except for Anamanaguchi and the guys over at ocremix.org for my opening closing music. I'll give the rest of the props at the end of the show. Anyway, remember when Napster went straight? Remember how nobody said it would work at first? How Napster had always been the guys you turned to when you wanted to get a random song for free. Because people love going with illegal downloading software. Come on, we've all done it. We've all done it at least once. BitTorrent is a new way to do it. Of course, with BitTorrent, unless you have something like BitComet, which allows you to download one specific song from a BitTorrent download, you're downloading the entire album. Then from there, you can delete whatever parts you want, keep whatever songs you want, so on and so forth. Kazaa, back in the day, was the one that you turned to. Kazaa was everybody's friend. These days, I know maybe two people who still use Kazaa Lite, the white version of Kazaa, because Kazaa put spyware on your computer back in the day without telling you it was going to. It would say it was clean, and then spyware would show up, which was just really terrific. The first time that I ever ran a spyware check on my computer Oh my god, I don't even want to remember how much spyware was on there because I used to use Kazaa on a regular basis. And a lot of the things that, you know, people used to say you get over Kazaa, I had on my computer. Well, I learned my lesson from there, never use Kazaa again. Now Kazaa is going straight. In the same lines as Napster, they're going straight. This is out of the register, yet again, reghardware.co.uk, and I thank David Price for this. I am really liking this website, too. I'm going to have to go up to it more often. Kazaa goes straight. Kazaa and Recording Industry Association of America, otherwise known as RIAA, have settled out of court in a deal which will see the P2P operation hand over $100 million to the industry. It'll now join fellow former industry pariah Napster as a fully paid up digital music distributor. Kazaa's parent company, Charmin Networks, will cough up the damages to the recording industry's four biggest players, Universal Music, Sony BMG, EMI, and Warner Music. The writing had been all over the wall for Kazaa since a June 2005 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the MGA versus Grokster case, case which effectively said P2P software makers could be held responsible for how their technology is used. The Kazaa takedown was particularly important for the industry because of the operation's successful business model, which was supported by advertising. At its peak, Kazaa had 4.2 million users. International Federation of the Phonographic Industry boss John Kennedy said, and I quote, Kazaa was an international engine of copyright theft, which damaged the whole music sector and hampered our industry's efforts to grow a legitimate digital business. It has paid a heavy price for its past activities. At the same time, Kazaa will now be making a transition to a legal model and converting a powerful distribution technology to legitimate use. RIAA CEO Mitch Banwall, Mitch Bainwall said, and I quote, The winners are fans, artists, and labels, and everyone else involved in making music, and our partners in the technology community. 
You know what this says to me? The RIAA won again. They won again. Because they have believed for years that things like Kazaa, the peer-to-peer networks and all that, are bad things. However, many different studies came out over the years that said that CD sales actually went up because of people downloading songs. Because you know that a lot of folks out there, including myself, and I've done this many a time, I downloaded the song that I liked from a band. I then went out and I bought the album. These days, if by some chance I happen upon an album on something like BitTorrent, a lot of the times, in fact, most of the time, I'd say 96% of the time, very arbitrary number there, but you get the point, I go out and I buy the album to support the artist. The RIAA is not sticking up for artists here. Oh, no. Oh, no. The RIAA is sticking up for money. They like their money. They also like screwing piraters. Because it's not about Kazaa. It's about them making money off of digital music. Kazaa is lucky that they survived because many a network over the years has been shut down completely because they would not give in. Kazaa finally had to give in. And you know what? I commend them for lasting as long as they did. That was my little clap there for them. I'm surprised that they actually survived as long as they did, quite frankly, because I really thought they were going to be, like, killed about four years ago. Folks out there will still be pirating. Folks out there will still find new ways to get their songs. Because every time the RIAA shuts somebody down, every time the RIAA makes a business deal, there will be somebody else to pop up. That's the way the internet works, as I stated before in this episode. The minute something goes down, the next thing comes popping up like a pop-up in Internet Explorer. Just the way life works. So, congratulations on your victory there, RAAA. I hope you enjoy it for the three seconds that it's actually important. Anyway, moving on. I want to mention this. did not mention this on the top of the episode, but I do want to mention it now. The top ten greatest gaming achievements of all time as brought to you by GameFAQs.com. Number 10, find every warp pipe in Super Mario Brothers. The beauty of Super Mario Brothers was always in its simplicity of look and design. It was quite a shock, of course, when the first warper accidentally walked through the top of World 1-2 to find the hidden warp pipes to Worlds 2, 3, and 4. From then on, every player of Classic Mario has scrambled to find the elusive warp pipe and to beat the game in even lower record times. One of the first truly great gaming achievements. I 100% agree with that. I've tried it many a time. Number nine, collect the seven Chaos Emeralds in Sonic the Hedgehog. Through the method evolved over time, though the method evolved over time, the task has always been the same. Sonic must collect all seven Chaos Emeralds to finally defeat Dr. Robotnik or Dr. Eggman. I like Robotnik. While many Intuitive gamers have found tricks and shortcuts to help lessen the burden of collecting these rare gems. It has always been quite the task to track down each link in unlocking Supersonic and the Final Zone. Even with tricks in hand, 
The fact remains that collecting all seven Chaos Emeralds will be one of the most memorable and most enjoyable achievements in the history of gaming. Number eight, collect every heart piece in The Legend of Zelda. Thanks to the wonders of enhanced graphics, storylines, and strategy guides, younger gamers probably don't appreciate the effort it takes to find long lists of items such as the heart pieces in Legend of Zelda. However, back in the 80s, to find and collect every heart piece was a daunting task, to say the least. And only one with a wealth of time, creativity, and rupees could ever hope to search every stone of Hyrule to find all of them. If not for battery backup, some say this task might have been impossible. And hey, remember back then, saving games was a bit harder. Because... There was no saving. Number seven, earn all 120 stars in Super Mario 64. As the flagship title for the N64, Super Mario 64 had a lot of things going for it. Creative and intuitive controls, innovative level design, beautiful graphics, the list goes on, I'm sure. However, Super Mario 64 also holds the N64's first great goal and one of gaming's most demanding achievements to gain all 120 stars. While every Mario game was lengthy to some degree, the sheer number of stars Mario had to collect just to beat Bowser, 70 in all, was quite the chore to collect. The remaining 50 stars were not mandatory, but only one who collected all 120 could call himself a Mario Master. I never did that. Number six, Escape Zebes with 100% completed in Metroid for the NES. Metroid has the record for one of the longest lists of power-ups and expansions to date, so many gamers instantly respect the man who can finish the game and gain all of them. Of course, the respect and prestige gained by completing Metroid with 100% was never the motivation for doing so. We only ever wanted to see Samus show a bit of leg. hi Yeah, you know, we all know it's true. Number five, reach level 60 in World of Warcraft for the PC. The MMORPG known as World of Warcraft has propelled itself to legendary status faster than almost any PC game to date. Dismissing, of course, the practices of gold farming and power leveling, the single most glorious achievement in all of Azeroth is undeniably to reach level 60, maximum level. While the first few levels may be simple enough, the sheer amount of experience needed to gain levels late in the game makes this feat one of the most tiresome and tedious on the list. The sight of a level 60 character is enough to instill true fear in the hearts of any noob. Number four, find every fatality in Mortal Kombat for the arcade. Oh, baby, that was hard to do. I never did it. I know people who have. It took them a very, very long time. The Mortal Kombat series has always been known for its level of violence and gore, but what truly pushed it over the top was its fatality system, in which finishing combos literally tore enemies apart in an orgy of death and destruction. The problem was that there was no single maneuver that would result in a fatality. Each character had a different combination for his or her personal fatalities and in later games for environmental fatalities. Only a true arcade fighting master could locate and perform every single fatality with no outside help. A true achievement. Number three, save every single victim in Zombies Ate My Neighbors, one of the classic games for the Sega Genesis. One of the greatest, most known, and most valued cult classics on the Genesis era, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. 
was an incredibly long shoot 'em up in which two teenage heroes quested to save all of their neighbors from a monster invasion. What made this achievement so difficult is not that saving the victims was difficult, just had to locate and touch them, but that there were 10 in each level, that there were 55 levels with three bonus stages, and that in most circles, for the feat to truly be respected, it must be done in one sitting. Only one who has seen the game can truly appreciate how much effort goes into the immensely frustrating task. Oh boy. Number two, beat a Max song on Heavy in Dance Dance Revolution for the arcade. A truly noteworthy and heavily respected achievement to say that you can master, or in some cases even pass, one of the series' famous Max songs is quite the brag. To say that you can do so on the hardest difficulty, however, is a privilege handed down to only the most talented of DDR dancers. To call yourself a Max Master is to say that countless quarters, cramps, and failures have amounted to a truly great dancer. And number one, complete the Pokedex for the Pokemon Emerald. This is it, the pinnacle, the holy grail of gaming achievement. Only someone with a nearly limitless amount of time, skill, and drive could ever hope to complete the Pokedex. All 386 entries. What made this task so horribly difficult, aside from the sheer number of obtainable Pokemon, is that Nintendo decided to nix backward compatibility with the GSC era of games, meaning that the legendaries from that game, meaning Muja and Ho-Oh could only be obtained through Nintendo special events. Add to this that certain RSE Pokemon had the same problem, and you have one serious gamer traversing the entire U.S. and Japan trying to desperately to catch them all. These tasks represent the most challenging gaming has to offer. While there are certainly many other difficult tasks, none are quite as famous, prestigious, or enjoyable as these. To complete each of these tasks marks you as a truly gifted player, one deserving of much respect, and certainly much bragging rights. Wow. This list, you know what, honestly, there aren't many lists that GameFAQs does that I actually 100% agree with. I pretty much agree with this one. A couple of the ones that were left off, how about beating the original Street Fighter without losing any life at all? That was really, really hard to do. And how about beating Super Mario, without any cheats at all, without any of the warps, might not be too much of an achievement when you think about it, but in the end, we've all used the warps. Might be hard, but hey, it's worth it. Anybody has their own list of top 10 greatest gaming achievements they want to send in to me, do so over at speakgeekspeak.com. GameFAQs did a pretty good job here, and you know, hey, I pretty much agree with it, so that's pretty good in my book. So... Job well done, GameFAQs. Job well done. Totally made sense to play a song from Ron Madaguchi after talking about the NES so much. Quick bit of news before we go into my review that you've all been waiting for of Clerks 2. 
This comes from David Price and MobilityGuru.com. Save battery life. Install Windows XP patch. Why you should install the USB 2.0 battery drain patch. At least as far back as July of last year, Microsoft knew that there was a bug in Windows XP Service Pack 2 that could drain life from a portable computer's battery if a USB 2.0 device like an external hard drive or an internal TV tuner slash video capture card was connected and turned on. The device didn't actually have to be doing anything. It just had to be there and powered on. Microsoft announced the problem to OEMs and others, but not to the general public. The company also released a simple patch for the problem. Microsoft said it was concerned that the patch did not go through extensive testing, that it might do more harm than good. So it was not made available to the general public. Our friends at Tom's Hardware Germany discovered and confirmed the battery drain problem. The staff at TG Daily interviewed folks at both Intel and Microsoft to get the facts and uncovered an explanation for the problem. I did tests on a number of laptops and notebooks and replicated the problem. We were able to get our hands on the early patch, which I tested and found to work fairly well. Microsoft released a production version of the patch for the USB power drain problem in May of this year. The patch was significantly more complex and comprehensive than the original limited release patch. I tested the patch in early June with an HP Compaq NX7400 notebook computer and reported the following in the pages of TG Daily. At maximum brightness, the notebook turned in a running time of 184 minutes without the patch and without a connected USB 2.0 hard drive. We then connected our drive which caused the battery time to drop by about 16% to 155 minutes. After installing the patch, the running time jumped back up to 185. So there you have it. Install this patch if you do have a laptop and you're running XP Service Pack 2 and you like using USB drives or internal TV tuner slash video capture cards. There you have it. And by the way, thank you, Barry Gerber of Mobility Guru for writing this article in the first place. And thank you to David Price. Clark's two-time best movie ever. Oh my god. Anybody out there who has not seen Clerks, I highly recommend before seeing Clerks 2 see Clerks. Because then you can actually see the true evolution of the characters in Clerks 2. In Clerks, they were snot-nosed brats. Okay? They worked the quick stop. And they wasted their life away. No idea what they were going to do. Dante, finally, at the end. It's a bit of a spoiler here, but those of you who haven't seen Quirks really shouldn't be listening to my summary of Quirks 2 anyway. So here's a bit of a spoiler. Fast forward through this if you have to. Finally decides at the end he's going to take some classes. He's going to get his life back in order. And all was well with the world. Fast forward 10 years later. And guess what? Dante is still working at the frickin' quick stop which I guess sort of says that those classes didn't really pay off. Now, did they? He opens up. He lifts up the gate. Fire in the disco! Oh, my God. The entire store is on fire. And suddenly, he's sort of forced to move on because there's no more quick stop. So both Dante and Randall have to look for a new place to go. So what do they do? Obviously, they get along with their life and they become IRS insurance salesmen. Okay, maybe not. They end up working at a burger joint in New Jersey. Same place they've always been. And here actually is the plot summary straight from IMDb. The sequel picks up 10 years later. It's about what happens when the lazy 20-somethings malaise 
lasts into your 30s. Those dudes are kind of still mired, not in the same exact situation, but in a place where it's time to actually grow up and do something more than just sit around and dissect pop culture and talk about sex. This is straight from Kevin Smith's mouth, by the way, from an interview at his Hollywood office. It's what happens to these dudes. A calamity at Dante and Randall's shops sends them looking for new horizons, but they ultimately settle at Mubi's, a fictional fast food restaurant. Free from his dead-end job and lodged in a new one, Dante begins to break free of his rut, planning to move away with his clingy fiance. Dante is ready to leave the horrors of minimum wage New Jersey behind, but Randall, always the more hostile of the two, starts to become overwhelmed by his own rancer. Okay. Randall realizes that in a matter of days, his best friend's going to be gone. Then it's just going to be him, left in New Jersey. Nothing left to do but talk to Jay and Silent Bob all goddamn day. You know what? That could drive anybody crazy. Also, he's trying to find a new best friend, as it were, in a character played by Trevor, Trevor Furman, Elias. By the way, might be the geekiest geek of all time. He actually believed that there was... And again, there's a bit of a spoiler here, but what are you going to do? That there was a troll in his girlfriend's mouth and in her vagina that was stopping her from doing any sort of sexual acts with him. This is a man who has watched Lord of the Rings about eight too many times. Oh my God, man, that is insane. That's something that maybe an eight-year-old would believe, but somebody in his teens still believing that? It makes me sad to believe that there's anybody out there in the world that would actually fall for that. And yet, I know for a fact there probably are. I know they're out there. It's kind of sad, but they are. Oh, God. Rosario Dawson plays Becky in this. And you know what? Honestly, my Hollywood crush currently is Rosario Dawson. Because she is a true comic book fan. She's writing a comic book. She reads comic books. And apparently... At Heroes Con this year, she picked up Transmetropolitan, which right away makes her cool in my book. Jason Mewes comes back as Jay. Obviously, Kevin Smith back as Silent Bob. You've got pretty much everybody from the movies in this at one point or another. Jason Lee plays Lance Dowds, a guy from their a guy from their same situation. Okay, he's a guy who grew up in Jersey, and because of that. Well, he made it big, and they didn't. So what do they do? They get mad at him. What else would you do? Wanda Sykes is in it, Ben Affleck is in it. It's a great, great movie. And it literally is a natural evolution from Clerks to Clerks 2. A 5 out of 5, straight up. There's nothing better, nothing better whatsoever than Clerks. It's the best geek movie around. And Quirks 2 is a natural progression because you could totally imagine these guys being at that store for 10 years doing absolutely nothing and then finally moving on with their life. And they do move on by the end of the movie. I'm not going to give anything away because I want everybody out there to see this if they haven't. The cast is hilarious. There's a freaking donkey show at one point. And this was the point where some critics walked out of the movie. Joel Siegel, a very famous movie critic, actually walked out of Clerks 2 because of this scene. You know what? That makes it good in my book. 
<laughs> when you make a critic walk out of a movie, uh, you're all right in my book. Seriously. And now Kevin Smith and him are having a major feud. And quite frankly, I don't blame him because Joel Siegel, to, okay, it's one thing to walk out of the movie, but he stood up and said, this is the most obscene thing I've ever seen, and then walked out. You don't do that, okay? As a critic, you're supposed to remain biased while you're watching the movie. You're supposed to remain unbiased while watching the movie. You're not supposed to sway anybody until after the movie. And he makes that comment. But, eh, what are you going to do? That was actually a good scene, to me at least. I really, really enjoy this. And there were cameos from the guy who played Marshall in Alias. He showed up at one point. And you've got the pretty much the rest of the cast from My Name is Earl showing up at one point or another also. Kevin Weissman is the guy who played quote-unquote Hobbit Lover. That's actually the name that they have down here for that. Uh, Gail Stanley plays Elias's mom, and Bruce McIntosh plays Elias's dad. Kevin Smith's own wife is in the movie, and I believe as is his daughter. Yes, uh, Grace Smith plays Milkmaid. So yeah, actually, I'm pretty sure that that's indeed his daughter. Don't quote me on that, however. But nevertheless, pretty much his whole family is in this, and his whole extended family, because Kevin Smith has a family in Hollywood. He's got all of his friends, all of his buddies who do these movies with him. Even Ben Affleck. Who is, eh, he's had his moments. Go out there and see Quarks 2. If you're a geek and you have not seen Quarks 2, well, then you're, you're breaking the geek code. I didn't even know there was one, but there is one now. There's a geek code, and it states, and I quote, watch Quarks and then watch Quarks 2. Ian made this comment, by the way, so anybody who asks you, Say it. It's the Geek Code is made up by Ian Levenstein. Kevin Smith is my hero. That's it. He's my hero. And Quarks 2 is worth every single minute. Because you might very well be this, these, geek, these guys someday. You might very well be Dante or Randall someday if you're a geek. Wondering what you're going to do with your life. And then finally it comes along and everything suddenly makes sense. Everything suddenly makes sense. That's why I'm able to relate to this movie. And that's why I really want to get it on DVD. And show it to everybody I know who hasn't seen it yet. Because... Kevin Smith, you done it again, buddy. You done it again. Get a quick comment rant in here, and then end this show on a high note. Paul Dini is a master when it comes to the world of comics, and he has done it again. He is doing a run on Detective Comics that just started up that has just completely blown me away. In so many ways, it has blown me away. Because he has proved that you could just do individual issues, one-shot issues, and have a run on a comic. It doesn't have to be a long story. It doesn't have to be the sort of thing that lasts, you know, for a very, 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 very long time. No. Contrary to that, it can be something very, very simple. 
you know what? He did it again. Paul Dini, obviously, he wrote a lot of the scripts for Batman the Animated Series. And he's done a lot of stuff in the Tim Dini-verse in the past. That's what I call it, the Tim Dini-verse, obviously. Or the Tim-verse or the Dini-verse, depending on who you ask. As a comic book fan, I've been waiting to see him come back. Every single issue that comes out feels like another episode of Batman the Animated Series. The lettering. They actually got the lettering that they used on the old Batman Animated Series comics, Batman Adventures, and that they used inside the show. They put back on this. Because that's Paul Dini. They know that they're going to an audience that grew up on this show. I grew up on this show, and I loved it. Totally loved it. I'm glad to have this back in my life again. As a comic book fan, these are going to be prized possessions in my collection that I'll probably go back to because it's very easy to go back to one-shots. It's hard to actually, you know, put the time and the effort to go in there and read, like, maybe a six-part series or a 12-part series all over again. You can just pick up an issue from this run and get a Batman story inside of that issue. And he's saying that it's going to be all connected in one way or another. But nevertheless, they're individual stories. I want to see that more in the world of comics again. Because as a comic book fan, I've seen long runs, and I've seen short runs, I've seen filler issues. These are not filler issues. This is just a guy writing what he knows. And he knows Batman. He is the vengeance, he is the knight, he is Batman. In this particular story that I just finished reading, 822 of Batman Detective Comics, Riddler goes good. Will he stay good? I'm sure he won't. But nevertheless, there's a mystery going on. There's a death. And somebody poses as Bruce Wayne. Try and make it look like that Bruce Wayne killed this girl. Obviously, Bruce Wayne did not kill this girl because, well, he's Batman. Spoiler! Spoiler! Bruce Wayne's Batman! Ah! But nevertheless, he drews, he basically he crafts a beautiful story. That's all wrapped up in about 24 pages. Don Kramer does the art. Simple art. Very simple. It's got a very clean line that I really like about Don Kramer's art. And Wayne Fokker also did this. He did a damn good job. The covers also, they stand out. They're all like pinnacle Batman shots that you've all seen in the past. I am loving this. Really not much I can say about it other than the fact that, you know, Dini is my youth. I grew up on Batman Animated Series. I've been waiting to see him write Batman again for the longest of times. And currently, in the comics, we have Grant Morrison on Batman. And we have Paul Dini on Detective. Can you get better than that? DC finally learned to put their big wigs on their big titles. Pretty soon, there's actually going to be Richard Donner and Jeff Johns writing action comics. I'm going to be in... I am going to be giddy when that happens. I'm going to dance up and down when that happens. Because they're putting the high-profile guys back on the big comics. They got Paul Dini back, and I'm glad they did it. Let's get Bruce Tim back. Let's see Bruce Tim draw some Batman again. I'd, I'd love to see that again. But nevertheless, you got me hooked again, DC. You got me hooked on Batman. I was thinking of dropping Batman after James Robinson left the title because, you know— his Batman was just so damn good. I was thinking to myself, how could they possibly finish this up? And then I heard 
Grant Morrison, Paul Dini. And I'm like, oh, so that's how. <laughs> they did a good job. They really did. I'm back on this title. I'm staying on this title for the long run. As long as Dini writes it, I'm good. After that, let's see who they get for it. And Batman, Grant Morrison, and Kubert on art. I believe it's Andy Kubert. Fantastic job. DC, you've done it again, boys. You've done it again. That's pretty short. Let's talk some sports, shall we? up time here on Geek Speak, where we switch things over from the geek side of things to the sports side of things. And on today's episode, it's been a while since I've talked some sports on here. So go ahead. I got to talk some Yankees. You know I'm a Yankee fan. Bobby Abreu and Corey Lytle. They are now members of the Yankees. Out of all the moves that were made in baseball during this trade deadline, these were the biggest this is one of the biggest trades that the Yankees have made for anybody in years. Because not only did they get a player that we know is tough and will be able to survive in the world of baseball, not only did we get a pitcher that will be able to be a key fifth starter that would probably be a third or a second starter on most teams, but we have gotten a reason to be in first place. And we are in first place. And we'll stay in first place. And that will make me a happy, happy boy. What did the Red Sox do? Oh, yeah. Um, nothing. They really didn't do much. And, you know, they tried to get Andrew Jones off waivers, but Atlanta wouldn't give it to him. Because of that, they're failing. Their pitching is abysmal as of late. More and more people get hurt every day. Jason Baratek is out for a while. So who do they bring in? Javi Lopez. First time they bring him in, what does he do? Grounds into a double play when they have a chance to win the game. I believe it was bases loaded with one out. And Javi Lopez ends the game on a double play. Man, oh man. Oh, how things have changed. Oh, how people had the Yankees buried about, uh, I'd say... Oh, man, what, what, what was it? Yeah, it must have been about a month back. They had him buried. Well, surprise, we're back, and it looks like we might very well even win the AL East, which will make me a very, very happy boy. Not many other people, though. Well, except for Yankee fans, because I know people hate the Yankees out there, but guess what? We're doing good, so let me have this moment, folks. Let me have this moment. Thank you very much. That was the windup. Now here's the pitch every single Monday for the rest of August here on Brooklyn College Radio, 1090 AM, and streaming the web at brooklyncollegeradio.org. You can hear me, Ian Levenstein, along with Jason Green, the ghost of Michael Hornstein, the ghost of James Robinson's run on Batman, and the ghost of Marlon Brando again, because, well, he's always hanging over us, on the sporting goods. The email address for GeekSpeak is speakgeekspeak at gmail.com. That's S-P-E-A-K. G-E-E-K-S-P-E-I-K at gmail.com. 
Don't forget to check out those forums over at speakgeekspeak.com slash forums. And don't forget to vote for GeekSpeak on Podcast Alley. The links will be in the show notes and on the main page. And also, as previously stated, GeekSpeak has a brand new iTunes link. So it's the link that actually has every single episode of GeekSpeak on there. Because I decided to make the feed so that every single episode is available, as opposed to only having about half of them on there, or maybe even less than that for a while. So ev- the one that has every single episode of GeekSpeak on that, that's the one that you should be subscribed to. Also, the feed for GeekSpeak is feeds.feedburner.com slash speakgeekspeak. That's feeds.feedburner.com slash speakgeekspeak. That is the feed for the GeekSpeak podcast. You can put that capital, capitalized, lowercase, whatever you want to do. You'll be able to find it there. And I want to thank the Pod Show Podsafe Network for the music on today's show. You can find their stuff over at music.podshow.com. I want to thank Anamanaguchi for some of the music on this show. You can find his stuff over at myspace.com slash Anamanaguchi. And you can find the opening and closing theme to GeekSpeak on ocremix.org. So I want to thank the folks involved with that. Yes, I want to thank Pixie Tricks, Shonen Samurai, Jeffrey Tosser, Zircon, and Deluxe for the opening and closing theme to GeekSpeak. So episode 42 of GeekSpeak is over and done, and it will be a bit irregular with the updates, but we will have a couple more episodes this month. So until then, I'm Ian Levenstein saying have a great week, enjoy your geek, and I'll see you next time for another exciting episode of Geek Speak. Medley, as spoken as if it was Shakespeare. Moreover, although she was thin with hunger and this was her portion, she still brought it to me. His teeth were on my throat when all a taunce his mouth opened, and he did. The gray wolf mother had fled, a frond no more, or her kin fellow after me and her, but if they will not, then they may feel my fangs. So when Pag fails you, you come to me for wisdom, she said. Still, Y has a great heart, and Y is right. Chapter 1XWI meets the tiger. Two days had gone by, for the most of which time Y has slept. She growled at him, but ran away, and seizing me, he also ran and bore him home. You gotta love it.